think of an intro yet? <laughs> no, I have not. Are we recording? Yep. <laughs> That's great. Uh, uh, we don't need an intro. I'm excited about this week. We don't need an intro. Hey, everybody. Uh, it's me, Kyle. I'm here with Jake. Hell yeah. And welcome back to Here's the Thing. And here's the thing about this this podcast today. We're mostly going to be talking about Terrence Malick. Which sounds boring. I promise it's not. He's my favorite. And if you haven't seen Terrence Malick's movies, uh, I suggest watching them in doses. Uh, I'm not even going to say go watch them. You might not like them. Figure out which one you might like and watch that one. I wouldn't say sit down and watch all of them. Yeah. Because they're not for everybody. Yeah. But if we talk about one and you're like, hey, I might like that. Go, Go watch ahead. it. It's it's they're they're all pretty good. Yeah. Um. Before we get into that though, last week we were like, hey, Cyberpunk looks good. It just has a couple of bugs. Don't get Cyberpunk right now. We haven't played it. We haven't played it. But it sounds like you shouldn't get it. it. It's just like things just keep getting worse and worse, and it's just become a gigantic meme now. In the in the like case of it's funny. I think the latest thing is they've apologized and it will actually be fully ready to play by March. Cool, I'll get it in March. <laughs> I just like that it's out now, so it's like it'll be ready to play in March, but I can play it now. Well, you can't. Yeah, you can't. It's because people were like, "We want it now," and well, part of see... that is like the fault of the fans, but the other part is like they shouldn't have announced it so early if it wasn't ready. Well, did you see what IGN did? No. So they reviewed it on next-gen consoles, on like the PS5 and Xbox Series, whatever the hell. Yeah. And they were like, 9 out of 10, great game. And then they revised the review and also reviewed it on PS4 and base Xbox Ones right now. Yeah. How and did gave go? it a 4. They gave it a 4? They flat out said, do not buy it for, if you have a current-gen base level. Like PS4 or Xbox One. Don't buy it. Flat yeah. Out. They were like, it's amazing. When you can play it on next gen consoles right now, don't buy it. Yeah, that's fine with me. I wasn't planning on it. It's essentially what we said last podcast. We were like, hey, if you don't have a next gen console, don't fucking play it. A week later, everybody's like, hey, don't buy it until you have a next gen console. Yeah. Um, uh, Also, the other thing was, I said I was going to listen to Kid Cudi from the last podcast, this podcast. Did you? uh, no, because we watched so much Terrence Malick. That was my day for the last, like, three days. Also, today, I spent a lot of the day editing. Um, but in that time, instead of listening to the album, I listened to Anthony Fantano's review of the album. Yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> Strong it's a good seven. album. I like it. <laughs> I like it a lot. Uh, it's not his best album by any means, but it's up there in I mean, terms of, like, is it good Cuddy or bad Cuddy? It's definitely good Cuddy because, like, We've seen Bad Cuddy. No disrespect if people like Speed and Bullet to Heaven. Yeah, I mean, it's trash. Like, in your opinion, did it deserve the yes. scathing review that Pitchfork gave oh, it? Oh, no. I thought <laughs> you were going to be like the name of Man on the Moon Part 3. Like, yeah, absolutely. I think it's amazing. Uh, that No. Yeah. No, Pitchfork ripped it to shreds and sort of pissed me off. Yeah, for the first half of the, like the review, it sounded like, oh, they're building up like this nostalgic Kid Cudi like, to like bring, bring home the gold this time. And the last, they pretty much did, except for the last sentence, they went, yeah, that's all great, uh, but he's basically riding on the legacy he built a long time ago and brought nothing to the table. Yeah. I'm like, wow, that's a fucking harsh review. So I just brought it up because, yeah, I did not like their review. 4.9 out of what? 10. 10. Oh. Uh, Pitchfork also, though, when they give bad reviews, whoever they get to write them, 
I'm pretty confident, like, wanted to be a comedian and just never followed their dream because the quips they get are amazing. Like, the first sentence is literally, the latest underwhelming installment of the rapper's cosmic album series arrives 11 years after the original and coasts on a legacy built a lifetime ago. That's the line that I was like, wow. Yeah. Like, cool. He built upon the legacy that he built. This is good. We're doing good. But because you know that they didn't like the album, the tone of that sentence changes so dramatically from like, yeah, dude, he added another brick to this legacy that he's been building. It's really good to the dude built this legacy a decade ago and he's just trying to coast on it. And that's not acceptable. I just thought that Pitchfork's review, although I might not agree with it, I don't know because I haven't actually listened to the album yet. I do appreciate how well written it was, the article was because it yeah. was really well written to be like, hey, fuck Kid Cudi's current album. And I was like, wow, I want to be upset, but I also really appreciate the way this writer is just taking stabs yeah. at this artist. Uh, at one point, one thing I noticed, not just with this review, but also with most reviews, is people are comparing it to Travis Scott, which I find really funny because Kid Cudi influenced Travis Scott to the point where um, the reason his name is Travis Scott is because one of his biggest influences is Scott Muscutty, who is Kid Cudi. <laughs> so it's like Kid Cudi influenced Travis Scott and now critics are being like, yo, he's pulling too much from Travis Scott. Who's pulling from Kid Cudi? Like, he's not pulling from Travis Scott. It's a cycle. He's just doing him and you were going, no, Travis Scott did that. Nah, Kid Cudi did that. It's also a cycle that feeds into itself. Like, artists are inspired by other artists that those artists might even inspire... The artist that once inspired them, which is fine. And I mean, if it was a ripoff, yeah, but it wasn't a ripoff, I'm sure, because Kid Cudi has a lot of integrity and he really appreciates Travis Scott as a rapper because Travis Scott is a fantastic artist and Kid Cudi's a legend. Yeah, I love Kid Cudi. I'm glad that the people that have listened to it, like the fan base, has been like, this is a great album. And that other critics are like, no, it's good in terms of Cudi, this is good Cudi, which makes me happy because it's like, honestly, I don't read Pitchfork. Yeah, they're not I don't my, either. <laughs> they're not my be all end all in terms of like music reviews. Yeah, they're mostly like, oh, okay, that's new and coming out. Cool. Like, thanks even, for letting me know. Even when I was into music reviews, I had Rolling Stone. Yeah. Pitchfork never crossed my mind, and then I got older and I was like, you know what, Rolling Stone, they're good. I'm not going off of them anymore because there was one review I don't remember who it was for, but the album came out and they were like two and a half stars, and I was like, that's the best album of the year. What are you talking about? And I immediately was like, all right, never mind. But I never was into Pitchfork. Yeah, I've never really been into them. I, it's mostly just like, okay, they're a really quick to quick to the gun media source that lets me know, hey, this thing's coming, or this yeah. just came out. Which they're good about, like, really quick timing and telling you what's just come out. Yeah. But their opinions I might not agree with as much. Which, on the opposite side of that, is why I follow Consequence. Because they really like to jerk off. Yeah. Tame Impala. <laughs> I love yeah, Tame Impala. Freaks. <laughs> but I think out of as much as I, I was talking to you about this earlier, Anthony Fantano, as much as I don't like take his word as law, yeah. he has very reasonable reviews. So when I saw that he gave Kid Cudi a strong seven and he gave Tame Impala's latest album, which wasn't their best, but was okay. I think it was like a strong to week six, I think. Yeah. I was like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and my thing with, because we, we talked about this, is I don't love... Anthony Fantano's reviews. The other night I fell asleep listening to one. Yeah. Which makes it sound like I'm listening to them all the time. I literally put it on, was holding my phone. Allie went to the bathroom, and when she came in, I sort of like 
woke up and the video was over and I was like, oh, cool. And I put the phone away. Like it put me to sleep. Yeah. But he's a chill dude. Yeah. And I don't take his word as gospel. I will say when he like releases his best albums of the year, I usually check him out because he studied music in college. Like if somebody studied something and goes, hey, this is good. I'm going to trust it because they know more than I do. Like, they know what they're talking about. He also looks beyond, like, the pretentious, like, this is good for these logical reasons. He's also like, this is good logically, but does it sound good? Maybe, maybe not. Here's what I think. Like, he's who basically said, hey, To Pimp a Butterfly is, like, the best album of the last ten years. And I was like, oh, I hadn't heard it. And I went and listened to it, and I'm like, holy shit, this is one of the greatest albums I've ever heard. It's amazing. I love it. Yeah. But now I'm looking at, like, bad pitchfork reviews and seeing if there are any albums that are like noticeably good yeah uh one of them that just popped up was eminem's album recovery that's a good album it is uh in most people's eyes in terms of uh post sober sobriety eminem versus pre you know slim shady recovery is like recovery is like great album in terms of his past releases it's like the one that was really good and most fans are like it's not his best by far but of the past couple albums, that's the one. Like, if I had to recommend one Eminem album that was made when he was sober, it's Recovery. Yeah. Hands down, bar none. Spacebound, fucking yeah. Not Afraid. They great. gave it, uh, do you want to guess what they gave it? I want to say, out of ten? Yeah. Like a, th- like a three and a half? No, 2.8. Like a 2.8? They gave it a 2.8. Not even taking into account how fucking huge it was when it came out 2.8 it was huge when it came out oh uh, the last sentence of the review is he sucks the air out of the room just by stepping into it i feel like they're trying to be edgy at this point. probably they're trying to be like hey this is popular well fuck you now kamikaze got a five well so here's what i'm looking at revival yeah which is universally even among eminem diehards that album's bad yeah i didn't listen to it got a five what? That got a higher review than Kid Cudi's last album, than Recovery. I don't like Pitchfork. What? This is why I don't like Pitchfork. What fucking eight-brained little monkey is smashing his hands on the keyboard over there? That's like fun. Uh, his name's Matt Ruiz. Matt Ismail Ruiz. He's an associate staff writer. He writes the news. Now I sound like I know him personally. I don't. I'm just looking at his page. He gets some things right, but... <laughs> Freddie Gibbs. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't like Pitchfork. I never really have yeah. because of that, because of how inconsistent they are of like, this album's really bad. You shouldn't listen to it. And then like my favorite artist will come out with an album. They'll be like two out of 10. It's like, that isn't saying I'm my favorite artist. They've done yeah, it no. with other albums where I've been really excited. And they're like, this is the worst album of the year. And I'm like, I know it's not. It flat out can't be like Miley Cyrus just put an album out. You telling me this is worse? Yeah. I hate Miley Cyrus. That also reminds me of like, I feel like, oh man, I think Pitchfork's on like the other end of the spectrum of Consequence because Consequence was like, The Slow Rush by Tame Impala was one of the best albums of a year. And I'm like, I'm a Tame Impala fan. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. But yeah, no, I don't like Pitchfork at all. Yeah. I know we said we were going to talk about Terrence Malick. <laughs> yeah, so I don't have a, seg- I don't have a segue for this. Uh, and you hadn't seen any Terrence Malick movies. So here's what we did. Jake knows knew that I hadn't seen a single Terrence Malick movie, and he put together a list of um, all his movies, so, every single one of his movies. And over the past three days, we've done nothing, nothing, nothing but watch those movies. Watch them. 
Which it was a it was a a haul. Which I'm so sick of doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. Like, and th- I don't mean to rat on them; they're not on the podcast. Yeah. But our girlfriends love to lounge and do nothing. And yeah. Allie messaged me while I was at work and was like, "We're gonna do this when you get home. We're just gonna lounge and do nothing." And I'm like, "I'm so fucking sick of coming home and sitting on the couch. Like, I don't want to do that." And then we get home and she's like, do you want to relax? I'm like, nah, I got, we got to do this. We got more stuff we'll record. And also I've been doing nothing for four fucking days. Like also at work, it was dead. And yeah. And I had to work today in the middle of a snowstorm. Nobody came in. So it's like, I'm so sick of doing nothing. And they love to lounge that I'm actually really excited just to be talking about this. Cause it's something to do. <laughs> Cause we've done nothing. And like, you hadn't seen these movies. I was excited to see what you thought about them, but I'd seen them all. Also, I had to keep my all of my like serious opinions to myself because we had to save it for the podcast. Yeah. And I am excited to hear what you have to say. But like for the ones I knew I wouldn't like because I'd seen them before yeah. and I wasn't excited. Like that's when I'm sitting there doing nothing and I'm genuinely doing nothing. Like I'm not watching the movie. I've yeah. seen it and I know I don't like it. And there's nothing that's going to happen in it that's going to change my opinion. Like I'm not going to have an awakening. Do I appreciate it a little more? Sure. But I'm not sitting there just like, oh, I hated this movie. But now I love this movie. I was like, nah, it's whatever. This okay. And so to like do nothing for three days. Like I'm so excited to talk about it, just to have something to do. I feel like I've. It's weird because I haven't basically my job is this where I'm sitting down and editing all the time. I feel like I've done more than you in the past 24 hours. You have. Yeah. You definitely have. I feel uh, bad. <laughs> don't. Uh, it's not my fault that that I got called into work on a day when there was nothing to do. There was so much snow. There was so much snow. There was a foot and a half of snow. We, oh my God, we had to... Did Allie tell you about when I went outside this morning? No. I woke up, middle of the snowstorm, six in the morning. Yeah. Walked outside to get my car started. Mm -hmm. Our neighbor is stuck in the driveway. Like, she's trying to move her car. Our upstairs neighbor? Yeah. She backs (laughs) back into her spot, where she is now, gets out of her car, and I go, you can't get out? She goes, I'm calling out. I'm like, cool. Whatever. (laughs) Perfect. Like, great. First person I hear go, I'm calling out. In my head, I'm like, I'm going to call my boss in 45 minutes and see where he's at with opening. So I brush off the car with the broom because I still don't have a car brush. Start the car up. <laughs> That's why the broom was out? Yeah. I was wondering about that. Come inside. My mom calls me at 6.30 in the morning. She goes, you better not be going into work. I'm like, I'm going to call my boss. Second person to be like, don't work today. Yeah, it's a foot and a half of snow. It's terrible. It was up to my knee. Like, it yeah. was so much snow. Uh, I'm sitting in bed. Allie wakes up. She's like, you're not going into work today, right? And I'm like, three. Number three. So I call my boss to be like, hey, we're not open today, right? Like, this is insanity. And he goes, no. I just drove to Concord to pick up my coworker, Jesse. Took him an hour to get to Concord. He was on the highway the whole time. And he goes, so I'll be back in an hour, you know. Just, if you get there before me, start opening stuff up. I'll see you when I get there. I hang up. I looked at my girlfriend, Allie, and I go, I'm going to work. <laughs> like, like, no part of me was like, hey, man, I'm not going in. But then I get to work, and he leaves. He left? He was there for an hour. He, he made a soup that nobody bought because we only served five people. And then he, he leaves. He made a list of stuff because he plows the road sometimes with, like, a friend. So we went and did that, and me and Jesse sat there all day. We, we He made a list. We did it in... Like two hours, like we crushed it. <laughs> it was it was so boring though, because then we finished it. It's not even noon, and we're like, oh, we're open till three. Great, like, <laughs> what do we do? 
cool. I'm going to bash my head against the stovetop. It sucked so bad. At one point, I was just throwing water on the flat top. Just, just to watch it steam? Just, yeah. Just to hear, <laughs> to hear something in the kitchen. I Yeah, when I was shoveling today, I jumped... Because uh, I shoveled our neighbor's porch. Because they still yeah. blow the driveway and the sidewalk. And I'm like, I'll do something nice. And I jumped down their back stairs to the backyard. And I didn't realize how far the f- ground was from the bottom step. Yeah. And I was up to my hips in snow. Dude, it's crazy. And I was like, Jesus Christ, this is not fun. Did you just pull up a slideshow about Terrence Malick? Yeah, this was my senior project. <laughs> so that was the other thing I wanted to say before we really got into well, it. Well, I feel like this is going to become a bit where we just cocktease the audience about Terrence Malick and then we never get yeah, to we're Terrence not gonna, Malick. Yeah, we're never going to talk about it. Uh, actually, that was my game plan. Was I really want to talk about David Fincher's new movie. No, uh, I do, but not yet. Um, we'll get to that next but podcast so probably. So you hadn't seen any Malick movies. Any. And what was the order we saw them in? Because I don't remember. I, I put them in an order. I'll explain it in a minute. Yeah. Because you hadn't seen any. And I, for my senior year thesis, wrote a 28-page paper and made an hour-long presentation on Terrence Malick. That's way better than my fucking project. So, don't say that. It's pretty I nice. didn't want to do it. I wanted to make one on Spike Lee. Because I liked Spike Lee's movies. I didn't like Malick at all. The reason I did it was I was talking to my professor at the time. Uh, shout out Deborah White Stanley. She's a god. Um, but I met with her and I was like, I really want to do Spike Lee. And then I looked at Spike Lee's filmography. And I was like, I'm not going to fucking do Spike Lee. It's too much. There's, There's too so much many made. movies. Oh. There's so Spike Lee is an amazing director. He has made so many movies. Just in the past decade, he's made like six. Like he makes a lot. Whereas then I'm like, I, I mean, I like thinking about Autor is like, Terrence Malick is definitely one. I haven't seen a lot of his movies. And she immediately was like, you should, you would kill that. You would love Terrence Malick. And in my head, I'm thinking, I've seen two of his movies and I fucking hated one of them. Like, which two did you see? I had seen The Thin Red Line and I had seen uh, To the Wonder. So you hated To the Wonder. I hated To the Wonder. <laughs> and so she's like, you're going to love it. And I remember sitting in her office being like, I really don't think it will. But then I looked at his filmography. At the time, it was nine movies. And I was like, you know what? That's so easy. That's so easy. I can kill that. Did you watch the documentary? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, which we'll get to. But, so, did this project. <laughs> and immediately sort of regretted it. Because whereas, Taren- whereas Spike Lee literally gives lectures, does interviews, is very vocal about how he makes movies... Terrence Malick, in his career, has given two interviews in the 70s. The man's a ghost. He's a ghost. But in learning about him, I read, like, two full books on him. I did so much research. It became my obsession for, like, six months to just figure out how Malick works Who as a this man is. Like, <laughs> I could give a shit about his personal life. I don't really care. Yeah. But how he makes movies intrigued me to no end. And so... Uh, when I learned you hadn't seen any of his movies, I was like, we gotta watch him. So, let's uh, list off. What, so, what's the order we saw them in? The order we saw them in was Badlands, which is his first movie. And then To the Wonder, which is his uh, fucking, like, seventh movie. But the reason I did that, one, two, let me see. Sixth movie. So, we went from his first movie to his sixth. The reason I did that was because we went from basically his most conventionally structured movie... Yeah. To his most experimental. Yeah. Because nobody really told me 
when I discovered Malik that his movies went from like in the seventies these sort of plot driven things to in the twenty tens. There's no real plot. Yeah, so like when I watched Badlands, it was obviously like an Artur getting like his feet underneath him. Yeah. It was very con- like you said, conventional, really well structured, had a plot that was easy to follow. It had some of like the the Malikisms in it, like a lot of the sweeping shots and poetic narration. Like narration as well a lot of the narration but that as a whole it was like a fun 70s movie it was also i think the best reason to have that as the first one was it's the only appearance of terrence malick in any of the films so So i was like oh there he is there's the man that i'm studying right now (laughs) so uh badlands was his debut he didn't make it for a lot of money in terms of filmmaking it's gonna sound like a lot of money to people that don't know what goes into filmmaking but it was only made for $300,000. Didn't I guess how much yeah. they made? I, I like nailed it, didn't I? Yeah. Uh, and it was given that much money because when that movie came out, that was when like independent filmmaking was booming in Hollywood because studios basically failed throughout the 50s. And then like in the 60s and 70s, it was like, Marshko says, you want to make a movie? Here's all the money you need to make a movie. You know, Brian De Palma, you're making a movie? Here's all the money you need to make a movie. Yeah. Terrence Malick came up. He's like, I want to make a movie. They were like, here you go. Badlands and Martin Sheen. Well, there because also the reason he got so much money was he ghost wrote Dirty Harry. He did? Yeah. I didn't know that. So Terrence Malick, before he made movies, was already an established professor. Yeah. Like, he didn't go to film school. You said, if I remember, he was a philosophy and religious studies professor? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a really interesting professor before going into film. Yeah. He, <laughs> uh, he went to Harvard so he's he got a bachelor's in philosophy from Harvard and then he went to Oxford and dropped out of their philosophy program because he disagreed with one of his professors. The man is smart. Well, he's got balls of steel. Yeah. And then he just wrote freelance journalism, but not like for a local paper. Like he wrote for the New Yorker and Newsweek, which yeah. in the 70s journalism was massive. So like he's doing well. And then he wrote a couple of movies, Dirty Harry, a couple others. And then he had a bad experience making a movie because the studios just kept cutting into it. What movie? Uh, it's called Deadhead Miles. It literally has never come out. Great. That shows you what production studios do to fucking movies with putting their hands into it. Yeah. That's what happened to Spider-Man 3 with Rami Malek. No, because Spider-Man 3 people saw it. I know, but he wanted Sandman yeah. to be the big bad and they're like, but we want Venom to be the big bad. And he's like, you know what? Yeah. I'm going to fucking shoot this thing in the foot. But and he so- did. So he became like super disillusioned very quickly with studios. And he was like, I want to make a movie. And they were like, sure, make a movie. Like, we want you to make a movie. And his deal was basically he had complete creative control, which is why so early on you see so many of what would become these trademarks. Because basically he made it so no one could show up and go, don't do that. You can't do that. He has total. He has He's holding so the much pencil control. and yeah. the paper and the clipboard and every fucking thing. Uh, the sort of. Downside, I'm going to give a little history on Badlands, and then I want to hear what you have to think about it. Yeah. Uh, The downside was it didn't make money because it was uh, distributed by Warner Brothers. And at the time that it was released, their big hit was Blazing Saddles. And they didn't really know how to advertise it because it's sort of a Western. It's sort of like Bonnie and Clyde, but it's also not a Western. It's a comedy sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's nothing like Bonnie (laughs) and Clyde, and it's not really a Western, but it has some stuff from those. 
Yeah. So they would double bill it with Blazing Saddles. Oh. Uh-huh. And people would watch this amazing comedy. And then this movie would come on and they'd be like, hey, this is not like what I just watched. I'd like my money back. Yeah, a and comedy then, paired with a, a, a serious... A drama. drama. Like, it's a yeah. straight up drama. Uh, it ended up only making like $50,000. This thing made no money. For Accounting for inflation, that's nothing. That's like it's nothing. Fucking nothing. If in today's world, if a studio like Warner Brothers gave you complete control and a budget like that, and you came back with 12% of the budget, you didn't even make back the budget. Yeah. You would never make a movie again. No. Flat but out. But he's tearing his mouth. It was also for the time. <laughs> like, independent movies were still doing well. Like, it was like, okay, movie might not have done so great, but the people that saw it loved it. Critics loved it. Yeah, we'll give you the budget for the next movie. You can make whatever you want, too. We're not going to step in. It was a good movie. Yeah. That's how he kept making movies, basically, was because of he was very lucky for the timing of it for Hollywood to be like, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah, did it make money? Fine. We'll give you more money. You want to make another movie? Make another movie. But yeah, his first movie was Badlands. Uh, I picked that for the first movie we should watch because it's his debut. Made a lot of sense to be like, all right, you've never seen a Malik movie. Let's start where most people that watch his movies start. Let's start with his first movie. I love it, but I'm, I, I want it. What'd you think? I, at first, I was like, okay, where is this going? Because I knew nothing about the movie. I saw Martin Sheen, and I'm like, okay, is he going to be kind of like a James Dean character? Because they, I'm like, wow, he looks a little like James Dean. And then in the movie, they're like, you look like James Dean. And they I'm say like, it okay, so many times. <laughs> I see where you're going with this. He looks like James Dean. Um... Uh, <laughs> And then I'm like, okay, maybe it'll be like a romantic thing. And then I learned that he's 25 and the girl is 15. And I'm like, okay, cool. It's a creepy ass, yeah, romantic kind of grooming thing. And then all of a sudden, he's fucking killing tons of people. Yeah. And he's on the run. And he's he murders her dad. Which sorry if there I'm gonna put up a thing that just says spoilers way it in came advance. Out in 73. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it it's it's over 40 years old. Yeah. If people aren't looking out for this movie, they don't care. Basically, because I'm trying to remember canonically what happens. When he killed the dad, because up to that point, there was no killing, there was no shooting, there's nothing. It was a pretty tame movie. I was like, okay, yeah. where is this going to head? If anything, it's a little boring. Yeah, it's a little boring up to that point. Yeah. Because he's like, I'm taking your daughter. And the dad's like, nah. And then he's walking away, and Mark Sheen's character's like, don't do it. And the dad's like... Yeah, and just walks away. He just fucking murders him. Shoots him. I'm like, okay. Which, uh, because I realize we haven't actually said what the movie's about. It's a movie that's about these two people who meet in like a small town in Texas, basically. And it's narrated by the girl. And they start a relationship. And then the, the guy, I don't want to say man, but the young man, they begin committing crimes. Yeah, like it's like murder. a Bonnie and Clyde situation, except for the fact that his character basically committing all these crimes, and she's so young that he's like, hey, it's fine, and he justifies it in all these ways. Yeah. Which, that's something I found extremely interesting, is that he would commit these murders, and then the narration would be the girl justifying it, how he justified it to her. And I'm like, wow, this is a really interesting story about like the psychology of being groomed and yeah. and being taken along for a ride as a young girl and being told that this is a normal way of living when it's not. And even though he's trying to be like lackadaisical throughout the movie. Oh, it's in South Dakota. South Dakota. 
Sorry. Even though he's trying to be lackadaisical about like his actions and everything, there's this constant paranoia, but also he's having a lot of fun with just being he's also insane. He's insane. He's but he's having a lot of fun with this thing. And then there's like that Rambo moment in the woods, which I thought was like really fun, where yeah. he's just taking out a bunch of bounty hunters. Yeah. So at one point, because the two of them are on the run, they've committed murder, and they hide out in the woods, and the guy. His name's Kit. Builds a literal fortress. With like hidden booby holes, traps. With booby traps. He's got a shotgun. Like he sets it up. And then they just live in this like paradise. Yeah, it's, it looks super nice. Like it's a so serene paradise like area. And they just live there for a bit. And it looks awesome. Yeah. It's and then, fun. The, then the police catch up and Kit just kills like three of them. Yeah. It's like three or four show up and he murders them all effortlessly nobody even gets a shot on him really yeah and then they run and they end up at kit's old co-worker's place and everything's fine and the co-worker's not too smart and he tries to sneak off to like call the cops and kit just fucking murders him well doesn't even murder shoots him in the stomach yeah and he's bleeding out and the young girl walks in and she's just like how you doing yeah you got a nice place like pretty much just casual conversation and i'm like i really like this weird dichotomy where this man's literally dying and this girl's so used to this at this point that she's like hey what's up i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm not i don't know what's right from wrong because i'm a kid uh how you doing and then the only time she's like questioning it is when he's heading towards the mountain which by the way when he starts driving across the valley towards the mountain and throughout the whole thing it seems like it never gets closer yeah i was like that's so cool because he wants to be free but he's never going to be free because he's always going to be chased so He's never going to get to that mountain. He's never going to find that utopia he's looking for. Yeah. Uh, and then the girl's like, hey. Kind of gets a little bit of sense in her. And she's like, this isn't fun anymore. I want to like, leave. Literally, the end of the movie, I think, is hilarious. In that the girl, this whole time, to other characters, is like, he's uh, she's justifying what Kit does. She's like, he's only doing this because he feels he has to. Yeah. She's narrating why he's doing it. She's like... She's like, it's me and him against the world. Yeah, like, he's doing this, and he says this, and I love him so much. And then the end of the movie, she literally just goes, I don't want to do this anymore. They're being chased by cops. Like, a helicopter is following them. They're on the side of the road. She's hiding next to a car, and she just goes, I'm not coming with you. And that's it. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't act against her. He's just like, yeah, okay, cool, have fun, bye, leave. And then there's, like, this orchestra music as she gets lifted up in the helicopter like she's been saved by the guardian angel and what i thought was insane was he was chased down and at one point he just stopped and even the narration of the girl goes i don't know why he stopped but i think he finally realized that they were going to catch up to him at some point and i wasn't with him so i think he just like gave up and he gives up the cops take him in and like throw his hat out the window and they're talking to him and i'm like wow okay they just got rid of his hat and you're like See, wait until you see what else they do to him. And I'm waiting for, like, this horrible thing. But they're just, like, talking to him. No, they love him. They love him. Which is also, so... He's murdered so many people. But he's, like, basically a sociopath. Yeah. And all he wanted was to get famous. Because he loves being told he looks like James Dean and he just wants to be liked. So, yeah, they they arrest him. They've got him all chained up. And he's, like, giving away his his comb, his lighter. Because he thinks he's famous all of a sudden. So he's, like... You're going to want to keep that. You smoke? Here's my lighter. You can say it's my lighter. Like it's merch. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> I'm famous. This is great. And, and then 
I just, and then they fly him off and everybody's like, hey, good luck, kid. And I'm like, I also like, as this aged, that is just like, as white privilege as it gets. Oh my God. <laughs> well, no, so then do you remember what she narrates about what happens to the two of them? Uh, doesn't he end up he gets getting killed. killed? Yeah, he ends up getting killed and she gets probation. But do you remember what happens? No. She narrates and she got married to the lawyer. Oh, the son of the lawyer that defended her. Yeah. yeah. So her defense, attor- her defense attorney's son, she gets married to him. And then boom. That's the end of the movie. That's it. They go on a killing spree across the badlands of Montana, hence the title. Yeah. He gets put to death. She gets away scot-free and marries the son of her lawyer. To be fair, though, she it. didn't murder anybody. And also, to be, I get it. I'd yeah. marry him, too. Yeah. I don't know who he is, but I'd marry him, too. <laughs> His dad's smart. He must be, too. And that's the most coherent plot we're going to give you yeah. this whole time. Because but, the rest of his movies start to take on the Malick trend. Yeah. Especially the second one we watched. Which yes. is the most, I think the most, as much as I know you said, the most recent one, um, A Hidden Life, was the most Malicky Malick you can Malick. I think a reviewer said. Yeah. I think To the Wonder is neck and neck with that one. Again, Badlands was his first. To the Wonder was his sixth. Yeah. Uh, to the Wonder, for context, was put out a year after the Tree of Life, which we're going to talk about. Yeah. But so, for reference, Tree of Life got nominated for, like, Best Picture. Yeah. And everybody, every critic that saw it was like, this is an amazing movie. And then, not much was really known about the production of To the Wonder, except its cinematographer was asked about the process of working on it. And he said, this is the most experimental film he has ever worked on. To people that have seen The Tree of Life, that was terrifying. Yeah. Because the Tree of Life is experimental. And to hear the guy that just got done making that go, this is so much more, is so scary. And to anybody that's not, if you look away from To the Wonder for a second, you're lost. You're Personally, lost. so I I could tell his experimental works, you ate them up. Oh, I love them. Yeah. Because so, I'm a fucking pretentious little film major. Yeah. Uh, I am too. I hated it the first time I saw it. I still don't love it. I get. I love it visually. They're all all of his experimental movies, which we're about to talk about. Pretty much all of them. All of them look beautiful. But I still think even when you're getting experimental, there needs to be a plot. I don't love any of his experimental movies. To the wonder, I think I like the most of. No, no, I don't. It's in the middle for me. I remember you looked at me after it was over because it was the first experimental one and you went, what do you think? And I... It rocked your I was just world. like nodding along. I was like, I love it. I love it so much. So um, I'm, gonna, I'm basically going to let you talk about this one. To the Wonder stars Ben Affleck, whose character, Affleck. whose character I loved. And I'll explain why in a minute. But it's about this guy. It starts in France and everything's great and wonderful. And it's this guy and this woman with a daughter. And he asks them to move to America with him. They're not married at the time. She comes back, lives with him for a while. Things get weird and, like, she feels empty and alone. Something's missing. Things look abusive. But there's also a thing about the film where things aren't exactly canon 
as you see them, some of them aren't real. Some of the pictures and, and scenes you see aren't real and you have to recognize that with what you're being shown at the end and which flows into the next scene, which is extremely hard to, to focus on if you're not paying a lot of attention. I'll explain how that works in a minute. But she leaves with her daughter, goes back to France. He has another relationship with Rachel McAdams, who I love Rachel McAdams so much. Oh my god. You have such a crush. I have on such her. a crush on Rachel McAdams. But he has a relationship with Rachel McAdams. Then the woman from France comes back. They get back together. He dumps the other woman. Him and the, the uh, French woman get married. The movie continues on. And eventually, she ends up leaving, right? I don't fucking know. I believe she does. <laughs> I don't remember. She does leave, yeah. But throughout that whole film... Uh, it's so hard to describe what this film was because visually you really have to see it to understand it. But there's so many moments where when things are going well and it's going slow, things are great. Like relationships are great. You yeah. see doubt slowly started coming over, come over uh, the, the French girlfriend. And then all of a sudden when things get excitable and heavy, like things start to get sexual and it's looks like it's fun but then all of a sudden it cuts to like a violent scene for like three seconds and then it cuts back to like a nice pleasant scene. So you're wondering what is real and by her reaction at the end of like the cut two scenes, you realize that the violent one is probably the most likely scene that's the reality of it all. And he's trying to justify it as, hey, you're fine. You're with me and yeah. you make me happy. And that's why I'm really interested in Ben Affleck's character because he just seems fucking empty. The whole film. He's an empty man. He has nothing in his heart. And he's just like wanting to fill a void in himself with like these people. And they all end up being upset with him. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't bring anything to the table. He's trying to figure out what's wrong. And things that he can fix in the outside world with his job. Where he's figuring out how water holes are poisoned or, or toxic. And he's taking samples from the land. Things he can actually fix. But there's nothing he can do to fix his own personality in these relationships and it just ends up destroying his relationships and he can't keep any of them and it's like he's just trying to stuff this hole yeah. in himself that uh, can't be filled and i just thought the interpretation of that is so loose like you can interpret it so many ways yeah you can that i could write a fucking 10 page paper on this film do it. i probably will so i'm just gonna leave it there uh yeah. it's a great film i really enjoyed it it was fun. It yeah. Was really fun to think about. The reason I picked the movies that I did in the order that I did was to show Malik as a director. I picked that one just mostly just to show where he would go with his career because Badlands, for me, I watch it just for the shots. All his experimental movies I watch just for the visuals. I like some of the stories. I don't like some of them. But with Badlands, a lot of the shots are sort of static. And then as Malik kept making movies, he liked... To do handheld a lot. Yeah, To the Wonder was a lot of handheld to the, shots. To the Wonder is all handheld yeah. shots. And not only does he like handheld shots, eventually in his career he starts working with a cinematographer named Emmanuel Lubezki, who is one of the greatest cinematographers ever. I'll die on that hill. He is one of the greatest. He's won three back-to-back -back Oscars for best cinematography. Numbers don't lie. He's awesome. Pretty much all of his experimental movies are made with Lubezki. So not only is he doing handheld, moving, sweeping shots, but he's doing them with one of the greatest cinematographers to ever live. So it's going to be beautiful. 
So I like those movies simply because they're beautiful. I didn't take away what you took away. Yeah, you like the visual side of Terrence Malick. Like, I love the writing and experimental interpretation yeah. side of it. Like the story of To the Wonder, I don't like it. Don't oh, I don't it. like the story? Yeah. yeah. But the way he sets up continuity and what is actually real yeah. which is not real. That's my like that's my that's like cracked me. Like yeah. you want to like put you... something in front of me and show me scenes that aren't real and you need to realize that they're not real in order to get the real story. Yeah. I love that. Like this movie ended and I was like, alright, we watched it. Thank God. And I looked at you and you were like, that was amazing. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, is this signs for things to come? Because I'm really pumped. Yeah, I was, like, <laughs> I, I was like, I made a mistake. I didn't mean to do this. Um, Visually, it was gorgeous. All his movies. It was gorgeous. The last shot of of the castle that you see in the distance or the, or the mansion yeah, you see in the no, distance. Yeah, no, it's a castle. It's Castle in the Distance that you see in the beginning of the film, which I have to rewatch the movie to even figure out how what that's supposed to be interpreted as. Yeah. Because I have no fucking clue. Oh. I know that the woman at the end, the French woman, is free, and she gets away from the guy. Yeah. And perhaps she's going back to the castle to find that initial innocence and playfulness that she had in the beginning of the film. Maybe that's why. Maybe, Maybe. that's it. Um, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, I've read paper. I can literally give you papers I've read on it that are like thirty pages. And I'm sure they have way more evidence to prove a way more sure. complex theory than me. It happens every time. But <laughs> I'm but, like, uh, I think I've got it. And then somebody says something, I'm like, I don't got it. But I'm so fucking stupid. Then we watched, uh, and I feel like we can sort of put both of these into one. Yeah. We watched Song to Song and Night of Cups. Song to Song, I didn't enjoy a ton. I enjoyed Michael Fassbender's character, like how he played the character. Yeah, he's a douchebag. Yeah, he's a douchebag. He's a douchebag. And he plays it really well. He he likes hooking up with women, and yeah. It felt like his most pretentious film, if that makes sense. Like song to song. Yeah, like it. Yeah, the plot was so thin and uninteresting to the point where Malik really rides the line of art and pretentiousness. Oh, yeah. And he leans, when his good, really good films lean way into art, and it's beautiful, and it's interesting. Song to Song, I feel like, leaned farther into pretentiousness, because gorgeous shots, but the plot was, like, so uninteresting. It's clear, but not fragmented enough that you need to think about it. You're like, okay. I could watch, like, I was looking at shit on my phone and watching it, and I got yeah. it. So, so I was like, okay, whatever. So, just to give context about what the movies are about... Song to Song is about, at least I think, I've read the plot on Wikipedia. It's about a relationship and then another relationship, but with the same woman. And then at one point, one of the men she's in a relationship with starts a relationship with another woman, who's played by Natalie Portman. Otherwise, I don't really, I can't say really what it's about. It's sort of, it's not that it's boring. It's uh, not boring. It's, it's, just... a, it's, it's a decent drama. A lot of stuff happens, but really, I don't know how to describe it beyond it's about a woman and her relationships with these people. And then this Michael Fassbender's character relationship with Natalie Portman for a couple of scenes. Yeah. Um, which I, Natalie Portman did a fantastic job acting in that. Yeah, I think she did great. Um, uh, and then Knight of Cups. Oh, I actually, I actually enjoyed that. That's more. my favorite one of his experimental ones. Yeah, I like that way more. Yeah, not to not to not talk about song and song. I, I don't have much to say about I it. I don't either. It's, Visually beautiful. It's gorgeous. Story wise, it's okay. Yeah. Acting good. Ryan Gosling's pretty. 
Yeah, so is Rooney Mara and Natalie Portman yeah. and Michael Fast. Everybody in it does well. They're gorgeous, they're pretty, they're good actors. I just felt they were handed a script that maybe wasn't Malik's best, but, you know, he was going places. I'm glad you brought up scripts. Most of these movies didn't have one. I know. Oh, man, I'm, I'm going to talk about that with some of the later scripts because I like how people got the rug pulled out from out of them with some yeah. of the scripts. So, <laughs> yeah, but with these one, like with To the Wonder, Song to Song, and Knight of Cups, he flat out, like, the scripts would be, like, five pages. Well, if it's all visuals, that would yeah, make sense. Yeah, it would just be what the story was. Because it's so hard to write. You can write so much dialogue, but yeah. visually, you can't put it together until you have those visuals. So if you write a simple five, six-page plot, you can make an hour-and-a-half movie if it's just visuals. I will say, about Song to Song, one of my favorite things about it, and we're probably going to touch on this the most when we talk about The Thin Red Line, the first cut of this movie was eight hours long. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he pressed play for, like, a bunch of investors or, or producers, producers. And, they, and they paused it 20 seconds in because it was eight they were hours like, long. They were like, we're, they watched some of it, and then they were like, can you cut it down? And he went, sure, but he would need more time to edit it, which is a notorious thing that Malik does. Yeah. And they gave him the time because they were like, yeah, there's no way that we're going to make any money putting out a movie that's eight hours long. Yeah, they wouldn't have. No it's way. None. It would have probably gotten a cult following, but that's a... It, yeah. But, yeah, that I think that's cool. But it was another one of his experimental movies. Critics were polarized about it. Yeah. Uh, some love it, some hate it. I'm indifferent. It's one of those ones that if it's on, I'll watch it. I'm not. It's not the first movie I'm putting on. If I was to choose, I wouldn't choose Song to Song. Even if it was on, I don't think I'd watch it. I don't really? think I'd watch it. I didn't enjoy it too much. But... Night of Cups. Night of Cups... I loved Christian Bale in that. I loved the relationship he had with his family and the really complex shit that they had to go through yeah. in order for him. And he's like trying to find himself in like this this life he's created for himself of art consumption, not consumption. It's it's like a so the, wealth. Yeah. Yeah. And the movie itself is it's a bunch of vignettes, which are basically episodes for people that don't know what vignette means, but it's basically episodical. And it's just about this guy and his relationships with these different women. Some of them are, you know, really passionate, lovely relationships. Others are long. Some are short. Some of them are like, you know, he might be a father. But they're all just these vignettes and showing this man and his life. And it's never clear which is first, which relationship happened first. It's never even clear if they all ended. Like, and I loved it. I love it for that. I love that it's part of his, like, I call it his experimental trilogy, but it's the one that's most structured while still being very experimental because there's not a lot of dialogue from the main character. He, that's something I noticed. He almost says nothing. He, the most film. of the movie, doesn't talk. Everybody else doesn't shut the fuck up. Yeah. Like, he's mostly, you see a lot of how he's taking his life by... Just his body, like his body language and his facial expressions, which I love. Christian yeah. Bale nailed that. But, but he, he'll be surrounded by these things that, and I thought it was also, to go into plot and interpretation, I thought it was also a great showing of how, not capitalism, but just this wealth that's supposed to make you happy and a lot of things, uh, a lot of things that people idolize. He's bathing in all this stuff and he's, it looks like he's lost and trying to find yeah, something sort of that he'll never wandering. get. Yeah. But... I also love this one because, and you guys noticed it, I remember I came out from, I think I was in therapy, which, shout out therapy. Hell yeah, therapy. My, Everybody needs therapy. therapy. 
but I walked out and I remember Allie looked at me and went, there's so many people in this movie. Because, yeah, I love Terrence Malick simply because so many celebrities want to work with him and be in his movies. In terms of supporting cast, you've got... Oh, there's Antonio so many Banderas. celebrities. <laughs> Antonio Banderas is in it. Wes Bentley, who was in the first Hunger Games movie, he was the guy with the cool goatee. Yeah. Teresa Palmer, who is a young actress. You would recognize her if you saw her. She was in Lights Out, Warm Bodies. Friggin' Frida Pinto, who was in Slumdog Millionaire. Fucking uh, Fabio was in it. Nick Offerman. Fabio. Fabio Nick was in Kroll. it for 0.5 seconds. Yeah. It was so funny. He Nick flashed Kroll. by. <laughs> Nick Kroll's in it. Joel Kinnaman. Thomas Lennon from Reno 911. Yeah, I saw him and I was like, whoa, hey, look at Ryan O'Neill from Barry fucking Linden. Barry Linden. Uh, and then even actors were in it that weren't even in it. Like Ben Kingsley recorded some narration for a ben bit of Ben Kingsley was supposed he to was be one in of the it? No, no, he was in it. He was one of the narrators for a second. Oh. He was never in it though, like visually. Like you never see Ben Kingsley, but he was part of the movie. So many people... We're part of this movie. That seems is it seems that he involves so many people in his movies and then just doesn't use them sometimes. Yeah. Or he uses them for two seconds. Yeah. Like, like Fabio's point five second. <laughs> like the scene. <laughs> Antonio Banderas' scene is like at a party. So many celebrities are in this scene for a second. Yeah, I'm like, wow, this is literally just a Hollywood party. It's, That's it. It's so I love um, I love that. Lou. Movie. I think it's Tereglio or Lou... Um, Joe Manganiello. Yeah. Joe Joe Manganiello? Yeah. Yeah. He He's one of the biggest D&D players in the world. I love him. Uh, but Joe Lou Truglio, I think it is. Yeah. Joe Lou... Brooklyn Lude, Nine-Nine. Yeah, from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I saw him, so here's something that made me laugh. The only thing that made me laugh in this whole film. I was really enjoying it. He was lurking in the background of so many shots and he was following Christian Bale and it was really funny. Yeah. Because he was very obviously watching Christian Bale and I was like, this is fucking creepy and it's really funny. (laughs) He's one of those TV actors who is known for the TV shows he's in, but I've never seen him in a lot of movies. So I'm sure he's not. I'm sure even he was on set just like, holy shit, that's Christian. That's fucking Batman. Yeah. Batman's over there. And then he just happened to be on camera just like, holy shit. That's Batman. Like <laughs> it was really funny because everybody else was because Malik has a great way of making people seem natural. Yeah. In their environment. Yeah. He was not natural at all. Not at all. It was so funny. Oh my god, it made me laugh. Took me way out of it, which is I think the only time Malik's failed to put somebody like in, in the world. In the world. <laughs> uh, but then we watched because I yeah I love Night of Cups. Night of Cups is great. It's awesome. It's epi- uh, It's episodic. It's um, great. Which I really enjoyed. I want to rewatch it to appreciate it more because I was really tired when I watched it yeah. that time. Uh, <laughs> but then I put on The New World. And yeah. the reason behind this was all of these movies so far, except for Badlands, were Lubezki, a cinematographer. And it was also very experimental between Badlands and this. Yeah. And I wanted to show his first movie with Lubezki, which was The New World. Which, I have to say, fucking gorgeous. Yeah. Not just for the cinematography, but also Colin Farrell. I think so hot. I gained a crush on Colin he's Farrell. So hot. He's so handsome. Oh my god. He's gorgeous. He looks like uh fucking Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. No, he's he's a good looking dude. I was like, why? Oh, uh, but handsome. Sorry, I could just gush about Colin Farrell yeah. being a fucking hunk. Uh, but for people that don't know what it's about, it is the story of Pocahontas. 
mm-hmm. like historically accurate to a point. Uh, she never had a love thing with John Smith ever. Yeah, and like the first half of the movie is is, is that that, but it's it's more about Jamestown and the founding of Jamestown than it is actually about Pocahontas. But it's good. I don't have a lot to say about it because it showed his sort of experimental movie making that was about to really take off in terms of him as a filmmaker. There are some parts where it's like, wow, where's he going with this? But not enough for me to really have a lot to say. Visually gorgeous. It's visually amazing. I thought that the uh, he really made the conflict between Jamestown and Native Americans very real in the sense that Jamestown wasn't immediately this thriving town. Yeah. They struggled for a long time, and they Dude, were this, miserable yeah. for, like, years. For a while. But, yeah, I don't have much in terms of, like, analysis to say. I don't either. It's a pretty straightforward film. Yeah, and even in terms of production, most of his movies, in terms of production, there's something there. This one, not really. Also, Christian Bale's in this. Yeah. And he's also handsome. Yeah, he's good. Because, uh, <laughs> like, you know, Badlands... The production, not much happened, but it was his debut. Yeah. You know, not much. Uh, when we talk about Days of Heaven, a lot happened in the production that I'm very excited to talk about. I Thin Red Line, I could literally only talk about the production if I wanted to. Tree of Life, they did a lot of cool stuff. Uh, Song to Song and Night of Cups filmed at the same exact time. That Mo- makes a lot of sense. Most of his movies, there's something in the production that makes it cooler. New World, from all accounts, plain old movie making. It's just like, a movie. Like... They showed up, they made a movie, they rapped, he didn't take too long to edit it, they put it out. Like, it's good. Step by step, plain movie making. <laughs> is it his best? No. Is it no. his worst? No. no. It's a great movie. It's good. It's fun. If you want to see a Terrence Malick movie and you don't feel like paying a lot of attention to like experimental shit, that's a great movie to see. Yeah, and it's not too long. It's only about two hours. Yeah, it's, it's just a normal movie. Days of Heaven. Yeah, so I followed up New World with Days of Heaven because the last three movies we watched, I think, are his like greatest hits, in my opinion. But I wanted to show Days of Heaven because I wanted to give you the last glimpse of Malik before he went full Malik. Like, he took control of everything. Everything. Yeah. Because uh, he's notorious about not working with production producers. Producers at all. And even on this movie, he didn't really, but he still sort of had to because uh, Days of Heaven was given a budget of $3 million. I thought you were going to say billion. I, I almost did. What the fuck? <laughs> uh, but it was given a budget of $3 million and it was put out by uh, Paramount. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 Paramount. And at yeah, the time, a studio. and the reason it got so much money was because when it was put into production, indie Hollywood was still a thing. And by the time it came out, uh, Jaws and Star Wars had come out, and indie Hollywood didn't mean fucking anything. Yeah, because then, oh shit, big series. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, big series, blockbuster. Big the blockbuster had been born. And people didn't care about small filmmakers yeah before that it was like okay big movies but these ones were like they caught the attention of every single person in america and they're like oh okay let's see how we can mass produce these as fast as possible yeah but that being said it's a good movie it's some people's favorite of malik's works it's not my personal favorite it wasn't my personal favorite but i will say it tripped me the fuck out yeah so this one in terms of production just movie making i think it's cool 
he shot a majority of it at golden hour, which if people don't know, that's the hour before sunrise and the hour after sunset. Yeah, basically it's as the sun is cresting over the horizon, so the best light you can get yeah. is there. Because it's the most direct light you can have while at the same time casting a lot of harsh shadows and you can diffuse it really easily. Yeah. It's the best light you can have and it's the hardest light to sh- like shoot at also because you have so little time to shoot before the sun goes away or comes all the way up. You don't have a lot of time, especially if you're corralling so many fucking people. Like, I bet Malik was. Yeah, so he was. for every single shot to be at Golden Hour tripped me out so much. Yeah. Because everything was so yellow in those fields of wheat all the time. Yeah. I also like this one. The story is pretty good. It's basically a love triangle. Yeah. That's really it. It's two people on the run, they're in love. It's in like the Great Depression era. So they end up on a farm. And the woman falls in love with the farmer. Boyfriend gets jealous. Love triangle. Well, it's more like... I found it more to be like the farmer was in love with the woman and she couldn't blow her cover as her boyfriend's sister. Yeah. So she was like, okay, I have to marry him. But then by the end of it, she was in love with him. Yeah. And by the end of it, she was like, well, I'm kind of stuck and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. This one was a glimpse of what would come later in terms of Malik in post-production. It was all filmed in 1976, and it came out in 1978. Okay. So two years. Took him two years to edit the whole thing, and in that time is when the blockbuster became a thing. So it got steamrolled. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, it w- The budget was $3 million and it made 3.4, so it just made its budget back. Okay. Well, it's not as bad as... F- no, it's not as bad as Badlands, but it's still not great. But visually... You'll get tripped the fuck out because yeah. it's it's so yellow and so unnaturally lit all the time because it's always golden hour. So you're always like, okay, the sun's setting all the time or the sun's coming up all the time. Yeah. It's never in the sky. So everybody's shadows are always being cast really harshly. And the only time it's not golden hour is when the wheat fields are burning, Yep. When which I loved that scene because... Throughout the entire film, the farmer's like, oh, I don't like your brother, a.k.a. The, his wife's boyfriend. And when he like was suspecting they had a relationship, he left. But when he came back, he saw them kiss, I'm pretty sure, Yeah. that time. Yeah. Uh, he basically catches them and realizes that he's been bamboozled. Yeah. It's like either you're an incestual relationship, which isn't cool, or you're not who you say you are. And he breaks and goes after boyfriend right after they're trying to get a bunch of locusts out of the fields which visually that was one of the most beautiful shots i've ever seen yeah when all the locusts are leaving the field oh Um, my god it was beautiful and then he throws the he tries to hit him with a torch and he Um, ends up burning down most of his wheat. yeah he destroys the wheat field which i was like this is gorgeous also i want to know how much land they bought or rented out to burn so much wheat they, they couldn't have not burned so much wheat. They burned that whole field. It was uh, insane. I'm looking into it. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to find if there's anything on it. Yeah, I, I just got to say that visually, plot-wise, nah, that movie's all right. Visually, that movie's goddamn amazing. Yeah. It's beautiful. A couple things about it. The reasons I picked it, really, to wrap up this portion of our Malik Fest. 
was uh, that's the only one that's won an Oscar. Oh, it won an Oscar mm-hmm. for what? Cinematography. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, but it fucking won, wasn't it's, acting. <laughs> it's the only one that won an Oscar, which I find interest, interesting because the next three, in my opinion, are the ones that if I had to give an Oscar, it'd be to one of them. What's the next one? The next three are Tree of Life, Thin Red Line, and A Hidden Life. Okay, let's talk about Tree of Life first yeah. of all. First so, of all, Tree of Life made me feel something that all the other Malick films didn't. Um, I gotta say that right out the gate. It's about uh, actually you. I think you have a better grasp on what it's about. Yeah. Than I do. Uh, so for people that don't know what the Tree of Life is, when Malick dies, that'll be the movie. Yeah, that's that'll his magnum be, opus. That'll be the one where you know, watch the other movies, but if if a critic was to be like, you gotta watch a Malick movie. It's this movie. It's not my personal choice. Mine, mine either. But it's but it. Oh. it I can see why. It's, yeah. So the story, it loosely follows two things. First thing it follows is a boy named Jack in 1950s Texas. It follows three things. It follows Jack in 1950s Texas and his relationship with his brothers, his mother, and his father. And then his relationship with his brother, mother, and father after his brother dies. And very early in the movie, it's established that his brother is dead. And then it goes back to when he was alive. And then, yeah. The second thing it's about is Jack in the present remembering all this, coping with it, seeing where he's at in life now. And the third thing the movie's about is the entire creation of the universe. Yeah, which I thought was so fucking cool. Yeah. And you told me that people walked out of the theaters because of that third reason. Well, because, so, even saying it, there's no way to put that in the movie where it would make sense. Yeah. So what Malik did was he didn't put it in the movie where it would make sense. He basically establishes... The family. The dichotomy of the family. Brother's dead. We're seeing this. Shows Jack in the present where he's at now. And then he jumps into that. And then he just, out of fucking nowhere. Just 2001 shows you, and Odyssey. Yeah, shows you these visuals of the universe and stars and explosions and the earth forming and dinosaurs and a dinosaur choosing not to kill something, which is like, oh, choice. Okay, cool. Free will. That becomes a human. Humans grow into the universe. Like... In the world, the planet. And then we're back, almost as randomly as we shot into the universe, we're back in 1950s Texas. <laughs> yeah, basically for five or six minutes, Jake and I are just like, this is so beautiful. You know how he did that shot? Which, by the way, he made a shot with just food coloring and some harsh lighting. Yeah, a lot of the effects in this movie were done practically. Which was so cool. Including some of the space sequences. Which were basically, he took a note from uh, Kubrick from 2001, which is he took these big buckets of water and would fill them with different ink colors and just swish them around, manipulate the light in a way, and it looks like apparently a star. Yeah, put it in a dark room. its thing. Like, put it in a dark room with harsh lighting and it looks like a galaxy forming. Yeah. It was so cool. And then we're back in 1950s Texas and Jack's, uh, Jack's growing up and becoming extremely attached to his mom. His mom and then... He really, like, it, it's it's a good, it's a really good movie. Uh, and I feel like we're not even doing it justice because talking about the plot doesn't do it justice. It's because hard to talk Visually, about. this movie is immaculate. It's really, you really have to just watch Jack because Jack's the child, grows up, loving his mother. Because Jake pointed this out to me. His mother uh, is defined as 
basically grace and his and father's his dad nature. Is nature. Yeah. So the, the whole... harshness of nature is his father and like his aggressive, very blunt father. Yeah. And, gr- and Grace's mother, who's very kind and patient. And um, there, there's gentle. actually there are two scenes that I think capture that those positions of the parents, which is there's one scene the dad goes on a business trip, and the three brothers. And the mom run around in the house. They're jumping on beds. They're playing outside. And it's like, wow. It's literally when dad's away, the kids will play. Like, yeah. But then there's also a scene, I can't remember if it's before it or after it, where the dad is teaching them how to hit. Oh, it's pretty much... Um, I think it's, it's before. It's either that, right before yeah. it or right after. It's because right they're, it's, they're back to back. And it's literally... It's never established why he's teaching them this. It's never shown why they would need to know this. And it's never they never show each other hitting each other. It, but it's the dad literally is making the kids while they're doing yard work. He's pulling them over and he's telling them, hit me. Yeah, and he's showing them how hits. to hit. And if they don't hit him, he goes to hit them and they defend themselves. And he's like, cool, now hit me. And they won't. And then to go from that into the mom who's like, you want to run around? Let's run around in the field. You want to jump on your bed? Let's jump on the bed. There's no violence. The yeah. world's beautiful. It so vividly paints these images of nature versus grace, which the whole movie is somewhat about I could there are so many things about this movie I could talk about. I also like the fact that uh it's nineteen fifties, so the mom doesn't have a job. The mom's just taking care of the kids and that is more into what Grace would be versus nature. He's the purely the caregiver. He purely gives he, them what they need, but he's also extremely harsh to them as nature is to everybody, yeah. humanity. It gives you exactly what you need, but at the same time, it's not gonna treat you nice. No, it and it it reminds me of, uh, and this isn't even the Terrence Malick movie, but the Denzel Washington movie, Fences. Have you ever seen that? Yes. The scene where the son asks his dad, why don't you like me? And Denzel Washington gives one of the best monologues ever. I think the monologue of his career. I think where he's was, just yeah. like, he basically paints out for the kid, you know, you're in this house. I pay for the house. You're in this world because of me. You've got those clothes because of me. You eat this food because of me. And he basically just goes, why do I have to like you? There's not... Any part of this that says I got to like you. I love you, but why do I have to like you? And if this movie could have any monologue, the relationship of the father is that. It's like, he loves his sons. There are scenes where he's hugging them. But for the most part, it seems like he's just a detached father. Yeah, classic 1950s dad that's not really there. And for a while in the film, Jack is just like, clean to his mom and he's oh my like, god i love my mom and he, it's kind of like this confused kind of freudian thing yeah where he's really coming into being kind of a young man and then he finds um like another woman he doesn't ever talk to her he just sees her in another house breaks into her house and takes her blouse Le- and yes. then he sprints down to the river and gets rid of it immediately because, because like so shame i'm glad you caught that yeah because yeah the first time i saw this movie i didn't i was like why is he pissed off yeah, there's a whole portion, and it's well that dad's away. He is yeah. spending all this time with his mom, and then he is hanging out with his friends, and they, like, they're hanging out in the woods. One of them shoots the other in the finger with a BB gun. Yeah, Jack shoots his brother in the finger yeah. with a BB gun. and they start sort of realizing that the world is a little harsh without nature there to tell them this. Yeah, that's what happens. Yeah, they get into a lot of trouble. Uh, and then he breaks in, he sort of sneaks into this woman's house, steals her nightgown, is so frustrated with himself that he immediately gets rid of it. And it's that. It's the Freudian. It's he's becoming this age where, you know, you're 13. Uh, which if nobody out there knows what happens to boys when you're 13. 
you get horny. You get really confused. Yeah, and yeah. you don't know what to do. Especially in the 1950s where nothing's explained yeah. to you. Like, he's not going to go to his parents and be like, what is this? Like, I stole a woman's blouse and I'm very confused and yeah. I have weird feelings for my mom. Like, and what? At one point, his dad comes home. Like, when his dad comes home, he screams at his dad that she only loves him. Like, there's so much in that one sequence of just you learn more about the son than you've learned pretty much from the entire movie. There's this moment of, of him trying to not be the alpha but trying to be the alpha for his mother yeah. over his father and then after his father goes away he breaks a window he gets in trouble with his mom but she's not very harsh with him and in reality all these harsh things happen outside of the house when his father comes back they have this like turn in their relationship where they start to kind of they don't enjoy each other more they just kind of get each other a little more yeah because he's growing up and he's getting to understand, hey, the world's not that nice. And his dad shows him, like, his dad's gardening. He's, like, shit. Shows him what to do. Yeah. Shows him how to respect when you're planting something, how to plant it, all that stuff. And, yeah, but the movie's beautiful. It's an amazing movie. Oh, also that moment where he hugs his dad on the sidewalk, like, very randomly. Yeah. Where his dad's talking to him. The kid's not saying a thing and just hugs his dad. And he, like, hesitates for a second. But he's like, okay. Which is actually a great segue into... As much as I love this movie, I love the making of this movie so much more. When he made this movie, went basically full experimental. And it was still a studio movie. I think Fox Searchlight, yeah, Fox Searchlight had given him the money to make this movie. And they gave him a $32 million budget. And with that budget, Jessica Chastain's the mom, Brad Pitt's the dad. Brought in these actors. And then he rented out a whole block in a town in Texas. I love that. Because he and the producers were like, how can we make sure that the movie looks like it's in the 50s, but in the but we need to know that in the background, a Prius isn't going to go flying by. Rent out the whole block. So they rented out this whole block, which on a big scale movie like this, you don't do that. You rent out a street. You don't rent out a block. You go to a warehouse and you build a street. Like, you're not, and then you put green screen in the background and you make it look like it's the 50s. He, instead, he just made a whole block the 50s. Which really put you into the movie. And then, oh, yeah, it so really great. creates this world. The other things he did were, um, it's all handheld. None of this movie is a static shot. Which created this sort of free flow for the actors to explore the space. Which, in movies, isn't so much a thing. But in theater, that's what theater is. It's, you've got this space, figure out how to use it to best show your character. This is your stage. Yeah. And he brought that to a whole block that was supposed to be 1950s Texas. And he just gave that to the actors. He was like, go where you need to go. If you're fighting outside and you want to run, run. Like, the camera will follow you. Don't worry about it. I have to say, one of the things I like most about Malik, he has a way of transporting you into a world and you really feel like you're either there, like in the past, or you're detached from this world. Like, with Days of Heaven, that's the first time I really felt that. And I was like, wow. I really don't feel like I'm on like this earth. I feel like yeah. I'm in a different world. And then from then on, I was like, okay, I really feel like I'm back in the 50s watching this relationship happen. Yeah, and the other thing he did that he brought into to The Wonder and Night of Cups and Song of Song was he would just do a take of a normal scene and he'd have both actors saying their lines and it's a very passionate, like an example would be there's a fight between the husband and the wife and they would both yell. And then he'd do another take and he'd tell, you know, Jessica Chastain, hey, don't say your lines. Use only body language. So then you got a shot where Brad Pitt is screaming at his wife, 
who is literally not talking. She's just crying. She's just yeah. standing there. She's trying to use her body language to show how she would react verbally. And then he would do a take where these two parents are fighting and you'd go, do whatever you want to do, fight however you want. And then he turned to one of the kid actors and go, walk in. Yeah, in the middle of mom and dad fight. In the fighting. middle of mom and dad fight. And that would change the whole scene. Because they'd stop. They would, there's literally a clip, I don't know if it's in the movie, but it was in the making of the movie, where Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain are having this screaming match. And then one of the kid actors just walks in the room, and they both shut up. And Brad Pitt just goes and sits at the dining room table like a pissed off dad. And then the mom comes in and sits down, and he just throws a plate. I love it. It's amazing. Like, in terms of filmmaking, people don't really do that. It really gives the actors... Because actors are, in all respects, artists as well. Yeah. And they kind of get stuck in the monotony of you say lines. You you're do repeating the, it. You're repeating it. You do the actions that the director is saying you to do. But Malik knows his actors well enough and trusts them enough in their training that he's like, I'm going to tell you these weird things to do. I'm not going to tell you how, how to, to do, do them. them. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you to do them. And I know that you're going to get this scene eventually. Yeah. If I keep changing variables on he also didn't bring lighting in it's all natural lighting so literally there wasn't a lot of set in terms of like a material like equipment yeah so these actors were put in this world and there wasn't much to bring them out of it but yeah he would do these shots and then in the editing he would put together like there's a brief moment of the two of them yelling and then there's just a clip of brad pitt screaming at jessica chastain who's just standing there taking it and I think it adds to the movie. I think it makes it a more emotional thing. I don't know how to describe it. Like, you really got to see it. And if it connects with you, great. It connects with me. Uh, if it doesn't, I'm sorry. Like, sorry, I wasted your time. It's it's a very... Uh, it's not for everybody. Just Terrence Malick in general isn't for everybody, I don't think. No, he's not. But if you really appreciate the art of filmmaking and really want to, like give yourself a headache trying to think about the meaning of a bunch of shit while you're watching shit these movies you're gonna eat them up you're gonna eat these movies up and i before we move on i love the fact that we don't see sean penn almost at all in that movie we see him for like five minutes and he was told he was gonna be the main character of that movie yeah so sean penn and we can get into this when we talk about the next movie then red line yeah yeah but sean penn in the script he loved the script. He's openly said he loved the script. He does not like the final product. And he's sworn off working with Malik since. Yeah. No. I thought no, that's was... Adrian Brody. Oh. Uh, we'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> but so he signed on. He loved the script because it followed older Jack reminiscing and going through his daily life. Now the final cut of the movie, Sean Penn's in it for a little bit, but you definitely don't get that these are flashbacks until you watch it a couple times. Yeah, and then the end. There's an end sequence where it, older it Jack comes and younger, together. Yeah. younger Jack, they're all in like this kind of purgatory, kind of moving on to the next stage of either heaven yeah. or creation or evolution, uh, whatever you want to interpret it as. It's this amalgamation of all the characters, to, like uh, throwing away time and space and physics and just being like they're all together now. Yeah. Um, in this metaphorical scene, and that's like really the only time you're like, oh, this is a flashback. This is real Jack versus these are past characters and he was told that he was going to be featured far more in the final cut of the movie than he was yeah uh 
His quote on it is that the screenplay is the most magnificent one that I've ever read, but I couldn't find that same emotion on screen. A clearer and more conventional narrative would have helped the film without, in my opinion, lessening its beauty and its impact. He then further clarified his reservations about the film by adding, It is a film I would recommend as long as you go in without any preconceived ideas. It's up to each person to find their own personal, emotional, or spiritual connection to it. Those that do generally emerge very moved. He just wasn't one of those people. He thought that the script was amazing and the movie wasn't. Yeah. Which, to be fair, I get if I read something and it was like, I'm the guy. And then I watch it and I'm like, where was I? Yeah. Like, Where was all that shit I filmed? Like, I'm not, I'm not loving it. But I do think this movie's amazing. It's, in my opinion, one of his top three. Uh, all these movies are. But then I put on what is my number one, which is The Thin Red Line, which I could talk about. I think that everybody will enjoy The Thin Red Line. I genuinely think that if you like just regu- either regular movies or artistic movies, Thin Red Line is a good movie. Period. It's really good. I really enjoyed it. This is my favorite movie by Malick. And I don't not like any of his movies. I think all of his movies are good. I know that you said, like, by a mile, this is your favorite. Oh, this movie, in my opinion, is so good. In terms of the movie itself, it's amazing. There's so many synchron- uh, like synchronicities of characters doing things that are beautiful visually. Yeah. In terms of the story, it's great. It's the story of Guadalcanal in World War II. Uh, in terms of the themes of like is war and hum- like war and humanity, where do we draw the line? Love it. The stories of the production are fucking amazing. This oh I I'm, oh I love this one. I genuinely I think part of the reason I think this movie is amazing is because of the production. I don't know if I actually heard anything about the background of the production of this. Great. I think you kept a lot of this from me for I this did. moment. I yeah. did for this exact moment. So. For context, because the way I put this showing together was to show you him as a filmmaker, where he came, where he went, yeah. where he like where he is now, all that stuff in terms of filmmaking quality. Evolution. Yes. Yeah. Uh, growth. For reference, though, when this movie came out, he had only made Badlands and Days of Heaven. And those came out in 1975. In 1978. Oh, this is after the 20 year hiatus. So, for people that don't know, and this is arguably what Malik is most famous for, Malik between 1978 and 1998 didn't do shit. He disappeared. He didn't do anything. There are literal urban legends about what he did. There's one legend that he walked barefoot across the country, there's one that he went under a different name, had a writing career, and then Made another movie. Like, it's urban legend what he did. In the time that he disappeared, though, film school started teaching him. Because he made two really great movies. So by the time he announced in 92 that he was making another movie, every actor under the sun wanted to be in this movie. And let me tell you, the cast of this movie is so star-studded. It's stacked. It's so, like, they don't have extras. It's just celebrities. I'm going to rattle off the ones that are in the movie. John Travolta, mm-hmm. John C. Riley, Nick Nolte, Tim Blake Nelson, who uh, most people our age would know as the counselor from Holes that gets smacked in the face with a shovel. Yeah. <laughs> Jared Leto. 
Yeah, for like, um, I was like, is that Jared Leto? And He's then it panned back. Two seconds. And I was like, holy shit, it's Jared Leto. <laughs> uh, Woody Harrelson is in it. John Cusack, George Clooney, Ben Chaplin, who people might not recognize the name. They'd recognize him if they saw him. Jim Caviezel, who was in Person of Interest. Adrian Brody and Sean Penn. They're all in this movie. And let me tell you, this movie about two platoons going after this ridge which will change the course of the war for that region is so interesting because one platoon is run by this really hard-ass veteran older guy that's like shoot first ask questions later and then the other guy is this very cautious dude who doesn't want to just send his men to die so there's this really great moment where the older veteran who has title over him says Take the ridge right now. I don't care if your men are going to die. And he's like, no, I'm not going to. We need help. And you're not going to tell me no. But just to really give an idea of how many people wanted to be in this movie, Sean Penn met with Malik. And before he even read the script, told Malik, give me a dollar and just tell me where to go. Who said that? Sean Penn. Because people like this guy at this point in his career had been taught in film school to these actors who were coming out of film schools and was revered. Like, he made two great movies. And then he goes, I'm making a third movie. It's been 20 years. Who wants in? Scripts were sent to Robert De Niro, Tom Cruise, and Robert Duvall, Brad Pitt, Gary Oldman, Al Pacino, Kevin Costner, Peter Berg, Johnny Depp, Edward Norton, literally flew to Austin. He would have been really great. He flew to Austin, had a meeting with Malik. Malik was impressed by him. Never talked to him again. Really? Never called Edward Norton. Edward Norton would have been great in that movie. Matthew McConaughey was filming A Time to Kill. Took a whole day off to meet with Malik. Didn't even get the script. This is like, Malik is like a like Jesus returning to the acting it, scene. It truly can't, I can't properly put into perspective what it would be like today. Because no director today has made two great movies and then disappeared. To put in, who's a huge director right now? It's like if Edgar- Christopher Nolan. Yeah, Christopher Nolan. Let's say Christopher Nolan made the Dark Knight trilogy. And then disappeared. But only that. Yeah. And then disappeared for 20 years. And then popped back up. People would be like, holy shit. Yeah. It'd be insane. Or like if... I was I was thinking like if Edgar Wright made like Scott Pilgrim and Hot Fuzz and just left and then came back, I'd be like, oh my God. <laughs> but those are all the actors that wanted to be in the movie that weren't even in the movie. What we're saying is this movie was gigantic. Now, for, the, for the entertainment community. One of my favorite things about it is there are actors that were brought in for the movie, were filmed for the movie, and are still not in the movie. Mickey Rourke, Bill Pullman, who people know as the president from Independence Day, Viggo Mortensen, and I think Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen has in it? That's really great. They all filmed scenes. Like, literally, there are photos of them on set. They filmed scenes. They had lines. They're not in the final movie. They're not even in the background. That's kind of like how, talking about how Sean Penn earlier was told he was the main actor and didn't have any lines. Adrian Brody was told that he was going to be the main actor. He doesn't speak until the last scene of the movie. Not even was he told. In the script, he was. And then the movie comes out, I think he's on the screen for five fucking minutes. Yeah, and he, he does something actually pretty cowardly. Yeah. And then just says one thing, and that's it. He's so insignificant to the film. He, like, if he wasn't even there, I wouldn't even notice. Except for the fact that I'm like, oh, shit, it's Adrian Brody. Yeah. Another person 
that was part of the movie was Billy Bob Thornton. He recorded narration for the movie. Four hours worth. Yeah. He never... None of it was used. None of it. And none of these actors that got cut have since come out and been like, what a prick. I'm never working with this guy. Why would he do that? It happened and they all were just like, okay. Yeah. Movie's great. This is kind of where the... Ego and pride of acting clashes with the artistic direction of a director editing their movie. And because you are acting for them to have content to work with for their film. And if they change the course of the film in order to make something they feel is more direct to how they envision the film turning out, then that's what they do. And you just can't really be like, hey, I'm never working with you again. Except for Adrian Brody, because he's like, hey, I thought I was going to get more yeah. like like stardom out of this, and he didn't, so he fucked up. But that comes into the, the passion of, of acting and the art of film. Like, you have to be able to appreciate the art of yeah. editing. And the reason he got away with it, because he, he, he didn't have to ask to do this. Yeah. He cut out people because he could. And the reason he got away with that... So his manager and his and a producer went to meet with him because at the time he was living in Paris. They went to meet with him and they were like, hey, we want you to make an adaptation of this book. It's called In the Boom Boom Room. And Malik was like, okay, cool. And a week later, they went out for another meeting with him and he went, I'm not doing that. But I wrote this script for an adaptation of this book called The Thin Red Line. And they were just so excited that he had a script that right out the gate, they gave him like $500,000. Jesus Christ. They were just like, we're going to pay you right now. Here's the money. A couple things happened with financiers, production companies, giving him money, dropping out. But right out the gate, one production company gave him $52 million. And then they backed out. So they took all that money back. But because they had given him that much money, all the other production companies that came in just matched it. So he had a $52 million budget for this movie. In the contract he made before filming started, he made it so he had complete creative control but the other thing he did was he barred producers from coming to the set or being a part of the editing. Yeah, because he was like, you won't interrupt me. He flat this out process. made it impossible for the people that just gave him $52 million. He made it impossible for them to go, I want you to spend it like this. There, He's like, hey, I've been gone for 20 years. I have this basically reputation. You just have to trust me. Yeah. And they did. Uh, <coughs> for better or worse, they did. For better. I think it's for better. For better. It's my favorite movie by him, by a mile. Uh, the movie itself is great. Yeah, to, to talk about the movie real quick, again, it's just a, two platoons taking a ridge, and it's just so many great moments of acting and and brotherhood. I, and, I, I, and just also pure unrivaled bloodshed on not just one side where you're like, oh my God, these Americans are risking their lives, but also... The Japanese who are trying to fight for their country and they get captured and they're extremely upset and they're just trying to fight as well. And you see this mirrored image of the American soldiers in the Japanese soldiers as well when they lose. And it's this really interesting dichotomy where it's not like they're they're uh, demonizing the Japanese. They're just like, there were two sides and they fought. Yeah. And this is how it went, and this is how both sides felt justifiably. And uh, there's this weird, like, there's this weird camaraderie between the Americans and the Japanese, too, in some scenes, where they're just, like, done fighting, 
and they're just kind of like nodding heads at each yeah, other. Yeah, they just sort of sit there. They just sit there and stare at each other, and it's this weird scene that a lot of movies don't show. It's like, yeah, the enemies are dead. We're done. Celebrate. No, in reality, they're holding these prisoners of war, and they kind of get this weird humanizing moment with them where these people that they were just told shoot at, go after, are now humans that have lost and are extremely upset and heartbroken, and they lost all their brothers, and the soldiers kind of see themselves in these people. For better or for worse, some of them are just dicks, and some of them, no. Some of them are like, okay, I'm kind of having a weird moment that I didn't expect to have. But yeah, I... I could gush about this movie all day. I could too. The I mean, production's we, we great. We've done it a lot. <laughs> uh, the visuals are awesome. I think in terms of showing... I also love it because I don't think the studios realized what they just did. Because they gave him all this money to make a movie. And he made it. And it was successful. It made money. It got nominated for Oscars. It was a good... It was a big movie. But I, don't, I think the studios accidentally funded Malik in his... What would become experimental career. Because this movie isn't experimental, really. But it shows that he was about to be. Because, like... At the end of it, it showed that he was about to be. Well, that and all... Even in battle sequences. There are sequences where they're blowing up a fucking hill. And then he just cuts to birds flying. Oh, yeah. There was a... They were... There were a bunch of people getting shot and dying. And there's a baby bird Mm -hmm. struggling on the ground for, like, a good 60 seconds. And you don't really think much of it. It's sort of... It feels sort of weird. It's like, why is he doing this? Uh, you get used to it, but I think studios didn't mean, they probably inadvertently sort of woke that monster of like, yeah, make whatever movie you want. And then he was like, okay, here's sort of a narrative, sort of experimental, World War Two, And then it was successful. What year was it released again? 98. Yeah, that was the year that like, World War II, Private Ryan. people were eating up World War Two in that mm-hmm. era too, so it was, did really well, I'm guessing. Yeah. Then the studios were like, okay, cool. And a couple of years later, he was like... Give me money, I want to tell the story of Pocahontas. And they're like, okay, cool. And he was like, okay, it's the story of Pocahontas. It's still experimental, but it's still the story of Pocahontas. And they're like, cool. And then he went, hey, give me money. I'm going to make a movie about a family. And they're like, cool. And he made a story about the fucking universe. Like, <laughs> I think they, I don't think they realized what they had done by doing this, but I think it was awesome and it was for the better. The universe personified this white picket fence 1950s Texas family. Yeah, but I love the Thin Red Line. Uh, it's really great. It's it's one of his longer movies. It's about three hours. But I loved it. And then after The Thin Red Line... We watched his longest movie. Was that the last one we watched? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, A Hidden, Hidden Life? Life? yeah. Ooh! I really liked that movie. I really enjoyed it. So um, It was his longest movie, but it didn't feel like his longest because it really draws you into it. Yeah, so this movie is about... It's a true story about a man who has been beatified by the church now. Which basically just means he's in heaven. The church acknowledged the story. They were like, you know what? He's in heaven. Yeah. Cool. It was a dissenter of the Nazi regime. Yeah, it was a guy in Austria who, when World War II happened, he went to boot camp because all the men were supposed to. But then when it came time for him to swear allegiance to Hitler and serve, he was like, I'm not swearing allegiance. And they were like, well, you have to swear allegiance. He's like, I'll serve, but no way. And he straight up just, he literally, he wouldn't say hail Hitler. Yeah. That's he, it. In fact, I I think, I don't know if he said fuck Hitler. He did. He said fuck Hitler. There's yeah. A, there's a scene and it's sort of the turning point in the movie because this, I also think this one is amazing because it's, in my opinion, the one that brings you perfectly into a world. Because the whole movie takes place in a town in Austria and then in prisons. But yeah. it spends the first hour just being like, 
this is the life in the town. He's a farmer. He's sort everything's of ch- great. It's sort it's of like chill with everybody. He hangs out with his kids and his wife. He's a good guy. You like this guy. And you then, like him. He's just getting wheat. He's just a nice guy. Pulling the milk, getting he's all, getting all a, shit. He's using a scythe. He's causing some weed. He's got he's, a wife. He's got some kids. He's a good guy. Baking some bread. But you just, church. it feels like a documentary for the first hour because you're literally just watching them. And it's beautiful. It's very nice, and it's very heartwarming. And, you know, World War II is going on, but it hasn't really hit their village yet. They're not affected by it. And at this point, I'm like, this is really nice. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is a Malick movie. What's going to happen? Yeah. And then when World War II hits, there's a distinct scene. He's walking down some sidewalk, and two dudes from the village go, you know, hail Hitler. And he just basically goes, fuck Hitler. And they both turn to him. And they... Run. Like, they look at him, and then they sort of just take off. And it's like, oh, no. I also got to say, prior to that scene, for a while, there's just this tension building up. Because in the beginning, like, first 10, 20 minutes, really nice. And then him going to boot camp. And then him kind of saying, this is insane. We're killing innocent people. Like, outright, he just goes, this isn't right what we're doing, what we're fighting for. How can I do this? And then he continuously kind of, like, says this to the priest he trusts. Yeah. But then he's really quiet in town for a while until he finally is just like, I can't. And yeah. then he says, fuck Hitler. And all this time, people are looking at him like, why are you saying Hal Hitler? And then finally in that moment where he's like, yeah, because I don't fucking like Hitler. It's like, okay, well. And it's not it's not even that. It's it, He just doesn't agree with him. Yeah. Like, he's just like, look, I don't think this is worth it. And he goes to the priest and the priest is like, it's not, but like, it has to be. Because if you don't, you'll die. And this, he was really, it's kind of a, a story parallel to Jesus in the sense that he would yeah. not give up his morals and his virtues in order to serve somebody that would essentially send him to hell in the long run. Why do you think the church was like, he got in heaven? Yeah. But then, so he goes, you know, fuck Hitler, which, you know, rock on. Fuck yeah, Hitler. rock on. Fuck Hitler. Uh, but then he goes to jail and everybody in jail is in jail for like legitimate reasons. Treason, actual treason, treason, uh, crime, they're insane, murder, actual crime. And then it's like, why are you here? I just don't like Hitler. Which puts into perspective, like, how insane the Nazi regime was of like, yeah, you're in jail for murder. You did treason against us, which like, rock on, fuck Nazis. But like, for the Nazi police, it's like, yeah, you're in jail. And then there's this one guy who just won't go, hail Hitler. Like, that's insanity. So then his lawyer is like, just say it and we'll probably just put you in a, in a fucking hospital. There's a while where they're just like, literally, if you sign this piece of paper, you will go free and you'll be fine. And you'll work in a hospital. Like he won't even see combat. Yeah. And he still was just like, no, I'm not going to do it. And there's this moment where he's first meeting with his lawyer and the lawyer's like, sign this paper. And he's like, no. And the lawyer's like, but you'll be free. And he's like, I am free. Like, yeah, he's like, I'm not, I'm not going to swear allegiance to Hitler. I'm free. And it's it, it's a long movie, but it's really well done in the sense of you sort of just sit there and you watch this happen. Because what ends up happening is, true story, so I'm not going to, it's not necessarily a spoiler, because uh, it happened. Google it. Look it I don't, up. I don't feel bad for spoiling this. But he's put to death. Yeah. Like he meets, he goes in front of the trial, and they're, one of the judges is just like, you got anything to say? And then this other judge stands up. And in German, just chews the shit out of him. Like, just screams at him. And I can only imagine, he's just like, 
You moron! Why won't you just say it? This is so stupid. You're wasting our time. I hope you die. I, I think it's. I think he was just saying because I don't fucking know it's German. But I think he was just like you're a disgrace. You're yeah, like awful. chewing like him out. Things. And the whole time the the main judge is just sort of looking at him, and he calls him in for a meeting. I love that scene. It's such it's such a good scene where basically the judge is like, "Why won't you do it?" And the main character explains like in the most coherent way so far in the movie yeah like he basically just says i've been taught to do what is right and hitler goes against everything that i feel is right and he he also says he's like i'm not one to judge i'm not saying he's wicked i'm he was raised wrong i believe he was raised wrong and i cannot in good conscience go and do what i believe is wrong yeah and the judge listens to him and then you know he leaves and the judge sort of sits there with it and it's sort of like, what's happening? And it clearly affected the judge, but he's still sentenced to death. And before we move on from that scene, the judge, in just his facial expressions, it seems like a thought he had a while ago, but he had yeah. to bury for the sake of his own survival. And he even sits in his chair after the main character leaves. He goes over and sits in his chair as if to be like, I wish I could be in that mindset if it wasn't for my own survival. Not to yeah. sympathize with this Nazi, but at the same time, it's this moment of doubt that this main character sows in this man because throughout the entire movie, he's told, what are you doing? You're not going to change anything. You're yeah. not going to affect anybody. Which, but he's obviously affecting so many people. Which literally the judge says to him as soon as the meeting starts, he's like, why are you doing this? Do you think anybody's going to give a shit? And yet so many people w- verbally, like they, they don't say it, but are obviously affected by it. And when he's sentenced to death... He goes, and at the very end of the film, when I believe, I don't know if it's his wife's father, rings the bell, the whole town stops, because this whole town berated his family throughout the entire movie, kind of stops, and is sad and mourns him for a moment, because they're like, he was a good man. He was genuinely a good guy. Yeah. But this movie, I love it. It is in my top three for a reason. It's so good. I think it's one of my favorite movies, though. Yeah, it's so good. It's also in terms of production, it was sort of Malik returning to form in terms of filmmaking. Like he, plot driven? He used yeah. a script, <laughs> uh, which he flat out said in like in an interview at some film festival. They were like, what was it like making this movie? He was like, I, uh, I lamented for my crimes and I finally used a script again. And the whole room laughed. Because it's like, at this point in his career, his past four movies are experimental films. And he finally is like, all right, I'm going to take the camera shit that I learned about like moving the camera, immersing you in this world, but I'm also going to use a script and see how that goes. And it went so well. It works perfectly. I love this movie. It is long, but it's so good if you just sit there and you just sort of let it play because it's it's not fast-paced. It's slow, but it's so good. It's sad. The ending is sad. He it, dies. Also, there's some, like, song to song, I felt like dragged, so it felt long. This movie didn't feel long. No, it's just, it's slow moving. But it, if you let it, if you watch it, you just let yourself. You get swept up. In yeah, it. It, it, it really does a good job of being, like, you're in the 1940s in Austria, in the Swiss Alps. Like, you're in the middle of the mountains. It's beautiful. I also noticed that Malik has a thing with wheat because there's so many movies where something's happening with wheat yeah. and, like, Days of Heaven especially and then in this movie where his wife is just cutting all this wheat. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's very... She's also dressed very um, portrait parallel to a lot of Christian paintings. Yeah. Like, Virgin Mary style dress. 
And I thought that was really cool. It's obvious that you can see a lot of his philosophical and religious studies backgrounds in his films. Yeah. But that's not what the films are centered. It's not about Christianity all the time. That's kind of just like a side plot that feeds into the meaning of the film. Yeah. Um, which I really appreciate. Which in my head I also thought it was like... There's a lot of like Christian films out there. Like God is not dead in a lot of films that are just like Hallmark movie yeah, films. Yeah, the Christian film industry makes up. It makes a lot of money every year. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but like it's a fourth or a third. Like it's more than you think. Yeah, it's a lot of money, but I feel like it would drive in a bigger audience if they use Christianity like Malik does, where it's not the main. No, thing. it's just it's a philo- He he likes to study with his, and he he asks a lot of questions with the mo- with his movies, and one of the frustrating things about them is uh, he'll ask these questions, and a lot of people get frustrated. He doesn't give an answer. But he'll ask these philosophical humanist questions about like with the thin red line, like how far will you go to capture something? Because then at the end of that movie, they see the human cost and it's like, how many people will you sacrifice? Yeah. Yeah. And then with this movie, it's like, how far will you go to do good? Like this man died all because he just knew that he was doing something that was right, but he never gives the answer. With the hidden life, the answers implied, like, the guy was good. He rejected Nazis. The man was pretty much a modern parallel of Jesus. Yeah, like, he rejected Nazis. I don't think anybody's going to go out there and go, you know what, I don't think that was the good thing to do. And if you do, get your head checked. Like, it's the Nazis. But with the thin red line, it's like, is the human cost worth it? And in the end, I think it was, you know, we won World War II, which is a good thing because absolute evil didn't win. But if we didn't win, would it have been worth it? Exactly. And... Tree of Life asks really philosophical questions that I don't want to get into because there's so many. But, like, he genuinely just goes out there and it has to do with the fact that he he studied philosophy. Like, he has these questions and I think for him, he uses his films to answer them for himself. But he's not telling anybody the answers. Like, I'm sure, <laughs> like, I'm sure the, I'm sure the Tree of Life for him was a study on his upbringing in Texas and, like, what it all meant. And in making that movie, I'm sure he found some answers. But at no point in the movie... Is he asking these questions on our place in the universe and the themes of nature versus grace? And at no point does any character go, here's the answer. Like, there's no answers to these questions. He doesn't pretend to know the answer. No. He just kind of frames the question and how somebody would struggle with that question. And in the end of most of life, you either accept the ambiguity of that question that there won't be an answer or you die struggling with that question. Yeah. Which I think he's a genius. I love his movies. Uh, I will say, and I told Allie this before we started this festival, quote unquote, I call it festival because I've never sat down and watched all of his movies. It's a marathon. It was amazing. Because it, it was a haul for a minute. I will say, if anybody wants to watch his movies, the distinction that I make before I show people these movies, uh, Christ. I'm dying. <laughs> uh, but the distinction I make before anybody watches these movies is he isn't a director who's making movies to entertain you. His he, movies, even... The Thin Red Line, which is a war epic. It's great. It's great. It isn't going to entertain you like Black Hawk Down or, no, or not Saving be, Private Ryan. Every moment isn't going to be life or death shooting. In fact, a good stint of it is them waiting yeah. and sitting. But if you're willing to sit there and just watch them, they're movies that make you think a lot. And I like them. Uh, I know they're not for everybody. I know that some of them, Ali completely tuned out. I know some of them, I tuned out. I know that Raquel was like, I didn't get yes at all. Like, <laughs> but I think they're all worth seeing eventually. I think some of them you should watch like fucking now, like Thin Red Line, watch it. Hidden Life, watch it. 
uh, Tree of Life, watch it. Days of Heaven. Days of Heaven, watch. watch it. And Badlands, watch it. But yeah, I love him. I could clearly go on forever about him. I had three favorites in the end. Yeah, what were your top three? I had three favorites. They're not like one, two, three. They're three tops in these categories. Yeah. Yeah, experimentally, I loved To the Wonder for the fact that you can interpret it in so many ways and you could really dig into it and there's so much meat to chew on in that movie. Plot-wise, Thin Red Line. Okay. I loved, just like if it's just straight plot, like a movie you'd go to see in the theater that you'd see with people, Thin Red Line, I think I would put on again and again just to enjoy. Overall, his use of experimental cinematography as well as ambiguous plot direction Mm -hmm. coming together to form one cohesive project in a finalized piece of art, Hidden Life, I think is... really yes i would definitely say that because there's a lot of shots that are like beautiful and some experimental and really peering into the human soul but at the same time the plot really sucks you in and lets you appreciate those experimental moments as well as fucking try to figure out what (laughs) what it all means (laughs) i like a hidden life it's really neck and neck with the tree of life because Tree of Life is way more on the experimental side. So I would say one that would pull you in and you can sort of relax while also really chewing on what it means. I think Hidden Life does that best because Tree of Life, you really have to sit there and chew on it yeah. in order to feel like you understand it. Um, so I I think Hidden Life overall is my favorite. I love Hidden Life. But we on, honestly... At the end of Hidden Life, because we were planning on yesterday talking about it right after Hidden Life, it felt like I ran a marathon. I was so tired yeah. after those three days of just watching movies. We yeah. would get up at 9 in the morning, 8.30 in the morning. Literally, I had it all timed out, too, because I was like, we're probably going to have to do stuff during the day. I had to edit. Uh, even though I already started this podcast with being like, we don't do fucking anything. We still had a lot to do. <laughs> we still had shit to do. With these movies... Our days were really tight because we'd get up at 8.30 in the morning, we'd make breakfast, sit down, and put on and just all the movies. start, and then, like, you know, my mom calls me every now and then. I gotta go to her house. She called me during this. I gotta call her back. Probably gotta go to her house. Yeah, my dad called me, too. Like, <laughs> but, yeah, no, they're amazing movies, and people should definitely watch them. Yeah, that's our review of all, like, quick review of all of Terrence Malick's film, except for the documentary, which... Which, so... Yeah, I didn't show that. It's worth watching. It's really good. But I just decided if we're going to watch his movies, we should watch the narrative-based ones. Because not to say that the documentary isn't great, it's really good. It's just a different style of film. Yeah, it's a different thing. Which, like, it makes perfect sense that he made a documentary. And he made a really good one. I also just, I didn't want to crunch it in there. Because I feel like you'll love it. It's really good. Uh, It's called Voyage of Time. Brad Pitt's the narrator. It's amazing. I just didn't feel that it would have fit anywhere and i also just genuinely wanted to just show you what he is as a narrative filmmaker yeah because he sort of makes movies that feel like documentaries so i didn't feel the need to show the documentary but it is really good and worth watching yeah all in all malik i think one of my favorite directors now he's so when it comes to experimental shit love terrence malik i love it this was a super fun marathon and also I think this might start a trend of not every week, God, no, not every no, week, God, no. but um, probably every few weeks, a marathon that we're going to do. And I think next time 
we're going to tackle my favorite director, who's Edgar Wright. Yeah. Very different style of filmmaking, but I love Edgar Wright. Like, Scott Pilgrim is one of my favorite movies of all time. For a lot of reasons. It's also a lot easier of a marathon. Much of, easier of a marathon. None of his movies are super fucking long. They're all very entertaining. They're all very quick. And there's also, talking about meat to chew on, there's so much to chew on in all yeah. of his movies. Especially Scott Pilgrim. I stayed up for two full days analyzing frame by frame one scene for a class. And I was so tired, but it was so worth it. Nice. Oh, I should have picked a different scene, though. Because that one was a little slower. Uh, <laughs> well. um, all in all... This is, we've been talking for two hours and ten minutes. We had a five minute break at one point. Just about, yeah. And if you guys have made it this far, I really appreciate you guys getting this far. And I don't. No, I do. Because <laughs> <laughs> this, this was a lot. And it's a lot of us just gushing about Terrence Malick. Um, yeah. And if you're not big in a film, I hope that you're like, oh my god, this seems so interesting. Or you're insane. I'd be willing to bet that if people aren't big into film... There's still a movie that they could watch by him. Yeah. And it would make them want to look more into movies. Yeah. Go try out Terrence Malick. Just try out a film. Yeah. Get if you wanna like get drunk or get really stoned and just watch like a fun like I think for thing his experimental watch. movies it is a necessity to be stoned. Yeah. I think that's... this is this is about it. Yeah, we, we got other stuff we can talk about next time, but I think this is it. It's like real quirky. We don't have an intro or an outro, but we Man, really fucking intro. We don't have an intro. Who needs an intro? We don't have an outro. Who needs an outro? But we really not us. <laughs> we don't have one. We don't have a budget even. We're not we, making money. We got nothing. We got nothing. But I'm not gonna romanticize the setup. It's not romantic. It's it. It might have romantic lighting. It could. That's about it. Uh, but like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but... That's all I really have to say yeah, about that. <laughs> I, think, I think the basement's hilarious. I love, I love it. it. I love it. If you guys want, we have a uh, gaming part of the channel called The Game Seller. Uh, check it out. Come check it out. By the time this is up, there's definitely some episodes of uh, Uncharted. And I think we're doing Red Dead Redemption 2 soon. Thanks for coming along. Uh, we'll see you at the next podcast. Goodbye. Okay, goodbye. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Goodbye. Okay,